0: I have this very vivid memory, and most of the details are kind of fuzzy, but the the specific imagery is very clear, of taking, I'm pretty sure it was Sean, to the doctor. Now, I do believe in not using your kids very much in illustrations. is very unfair, but I would say if you're below the age of personal accountability, it's okay to tell baby stories, uh, because that way I don't make him look bad. So I took him to the doctor, and it was... I don't remember how old he was. I don't remember why I was the one taking him to the doctor, because that was not really my specialty. I don't know if Melanie was there. She probably was, because I can't really picture her trusting this to an amateur, but, uh, but it was one of those visits, the kind that comes with shots, right? And, and it all started out great, right? They did the vitals, height, weight, et cetera, all good. Needle came out, no problem, right? He's an unsuspecting baby, so he's got nothing to complain about. And then the most unusual and terrible thing that he had ever experienced in his brief, happy, and pain-free life happened. He got stabbed in the leg. And there's this sort of look of shock, like, what just happened here? like. And then the crying started. And as you might imagine, it kind of went downhill from there. He The crying continued, and then the the second shot came out, and that was even less popular. And then, being very smart, when the needle came out a third time, he, he wanted no part of this, and we had to hold his leg down so that they could get him that third time. Now, was I a bad person for letting my child suffer? I'll probably get a head nod from over there, but... Or was I a monster for putting him in a situation where I knew he was going to experience pain and and worse, was actually aiding and abetting those who were hurting him? Uh, Some may think so, but in general, I feel like I made the right choice on this. I feel like I was in the right, and my reason is fairly simple. It's, It's that while I was very sorry for his pain, I knew there was a greater good that was involved. Right, that he was just not capable of understanding that at this time in his life, that this brief but intense pain was going to be the thing that was going to protect him and the people that come in contact with him from horrible diseases, diseases that my generation can't really picture because they were largely eradicated, but the stuff that was really the, the stuff of nightmares for our, our grandparents' generation. Right, diseases that could kill or disable or disfigure permanently. And as we continue our look at these seven signs of the Savior, we're going to come to one that is so famous that probably everybody thinks they know it, Right, the raising of Lazarus. But as I was studying it just for preparing this message, it was only then that I began to really see how much Jesus was clearly permitting the suffering and the sadness of Lazarus and his sisters, because there was a greater good at stake, a greater good for them, and a greater good for all of mankind. This is the the sixth of the seven miracles that were so spectacular, so unique and powerful and rich in meaning, that John wrote them down, called them signs, and put them there so that we would specifically know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have eternal life in his name. Now, next Sunday, we're going to take a little pause from that, just like Jesus did. He took a little pause from doing signs during the Passion Week and spent some time preparing his disciples to go out into the world after his departure. And then on Easter, we're going to come to celebrate the great sign, the 7th. The resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now the resurrection, or rather the raising of Lazarus, is in John chapter 11. It is the entire chapter. I'm going to excerpt it a little bit for the interest of time, although I'm sure everyone here would be happy to stay for a couple hours, but I got to go home and finish my cake for the cake auction. Right? I have cake, I have no frosting, so this is time is of the essence. I would advise you, if you have a Bible or could find one in the pew in front of you, you may want to follow along in the Bible. I will keep it up on the screen and try and click appropriately, but it's a long passage. Uh... Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So he took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I, I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This miracle is really the climax of John's narrative of the earthly ministry of Jesus. The rest of the Gospel of John is focused on the events of the Passion Week, and the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So three years of ministry comes to a peak right here. It's the point where Jesus proves everything he's ever said. And as we go through this message, we'll look at some of the things he said in, earlier in his ministry and how, it's, how he fulfills it. This event is very prominent. It takes place two miles from Jerusalem and involves a, a fairly prominent family. The signs seem to indicate that this family is well-known and probably reasonably wealthy. Right? That's why so many people came to visit And it takes place sometime before the Passover. It's not entirely clear how close. So there may have already been crowds starting to pour into the area to celebrate the Passover feast. And So so this miracle is the top news story of the evening news in Jerusalem. This is the thing everyone is talking about. If you read the words of the Gospel of John carefully, this is the thing that drives the crowds crazy so that when Jesus enters Jerusalem... They are cheering and shouting and hosannaing and waving the palm fronds. It's because of this more than anything else. But at the same time, this is also the thing that seals Jesus' fate. Because up to this point, right up to this point, the Pharisees had been casually interested in killing Jesus. It was kind of when they got around to it. But now they realize they need to kill this man and Lazarus as well. Because too many people are going to believe in him. And let's get the Romans to come in and tear the place up. So this is really the triggering event for what we see play out in the Passion Week. And to help us ultimately understand the meaning of this sign, let's walk back through a few of the key items that John points out as he tells us the story. When John receives the news that his good friend Lazarus is sick, he is some distance away. It's a little bit unclear where exactly he is, how far away he is. But he's laying low from the Pharisees who want to kill him because he had said he was the son of God. So again, it was already on their agenda to kill him when they got around to it, but it becomes much more urgent after what we talk about today. Hearing about this illness, Jesus immediately tells its purpose. So so even though someone comes and says, your friend Lazarus is sick, it's quite clear that Jesus already knows all the details about what's going on. So it gives us a little insight into the unlimited mind of Jesus Christ. Now, not every illness has a purpose. Certainly... The average cold may or may not have a purpose. But but Jesus is clear in verse 4. This one does. This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, interestingly, quite obviously, this illness did lead to temporary death. So it's not that Jesus is wrong. It's that he knows he's going to raise Lazarus, and so he's really trying to reassure his disciples that this is not causing permanent death for Lazarus, their friend. Once again, we see the dynamic that we saw last week with the blind beggar, that that this illness, this sadness and suffering is for God's glory and the glory of Jesus. And like we talked about last week, that kind of sounds a little harsh. That sounds kind of rough. That God is using a man's death for his glory, but I would say it's kind of like that vaccination story. This is temporary pain for Lazarus and his family that is for a much greater purpose, both for them and for the world. Certainly no purpose is is greater than the glory of God, but in this case, that glory is being displayed specifically so those who would hear of this story would believe and have life forever. Well, in comparison to that, a little sickness and a couple days of dead time is a relatively small price to pay. Now, note what John says in verses 5 and 6. Jesus really loved this family. So as soon as he heard the news, he took off with his disciples to go and save him. Well, actually, that's not what it says. Jesus really loved this family, and so he went and did a remote healing like he did in chapter 4, because we know distance doesn't matter to Jesus. No, that's not what he does either, right? He really loves this family, so he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Well, that's kind of an unusual way to demonstrate love for somebody who's sick. I love you. I'm sorry you're sick. I really love you, so I'm not going to come and visit or heal you. But once again, there is a bigger picture that's at work here, a deeper love. And as we reconstruct the timeline of the events, I think this delay is probably not responsible for Lazarus dying. But it does make sure that he is good and dead before Jesus does anything about it. This, I think, gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the varied ways and nature of Christ's love for us. Right? When we think of Christ's love, we usually feel warm and cozy inside, and we think of those great moments when his love feels great. But sometimes, because he knows what's best for us in the long run, his love doesn't feel very good or warm or kind or cozy or loving. But it's always loving in the bigger picture, just like holding down Sean's leg so that my precious baby can get stabbed with a needle, is loving in the bigger picture because it builds up the strength of his body to resist terrible diseases. Well, Jesus finally gets on the road with his disciples after his two-day delay. And based on verses 11 to 14, which we didn't read, but you're welcome to read, encouraged to read, of course, the departure seems to be triggered by his certain knowledge that Lazarus has now died. He seems to have waited until Lazarus died, and he's like, all right, now we're ready to go. Well, Jesus and his disciples finally reach Bethany, and by now Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days, And, and this seems to be a point that John is emphasizing. It's mentioned twice in the narrative, which is usually a good sign that there's something going on here we should pay attention to. Quite likely, the importance of it ties to a long-standing Jewish belief that a soul would hang around the body for three days, that it could re-enter the body under certain circumstances for up to three days, and then the decomposition would set in and the soul would take off. We can't say that for certain because the written record of this in Jewish Talmudic teaching post-dates Jesus, but... Given John's emphasis on this four-day matter, it seems likely that this was already a commonplace belief. And the idea, I think, is that, you know, raising a guy from the dead after only two or three days, eh, not that big a deal, apparently. But four days, that's serious business. As Jesus approaches the town, the enterprising Martha comes out and grieves the fact that Jesus couldn't be present to heal Lazarus. Jesus then leads her to explain and explore her beliefs about him, meaning Jesus. And it's as this conversation progresses that he pronounces the central and most important truth of this whole narrative, which is found in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I will tip my hand. I will skip ahead and tell you that this is the point of the whole miracle. How do I know this? Because it's the point of the Gospel of John that we would believe, and in believing we would have eternal life in his name. And Martha professes her faith. And her confession, look at it carefully, is exactly the word for word the same as that of Peter. right? Peter's confession is the thing that Jesus says, this is the rock I'm building my church on. And Martha makes the same confession. She has reached that same level of understanding of who Jesus is. And, and I say this to defend Martha, because I feel like she gets a terrible rap in churches. right? Everybody preaches, Mar- Mary good, Martha bad. Okay, yeah, there was that one incident, she got some priorities wrong. But look at it here, her faith is amazing, right? So yes, she made a mistake in priorities, but her faith is amazing. Then it's Mary's turn, and she goes to Jesus, and she has a whole group of the Jews following her, right, because they're... Again, probably a prominent family, lots of people, friends came to visit, extended family, and, and they probably hired some professional mourners. You did that. You would get people specifically to wail at the, at, for several days. It was a There's a Talmudic thing on how many people you're supposed to, to hire to, to boohoo at a particular wet funeral. And she falls at his feet. She is utterly distraught, and Jesus himself is upset by this scene. And I would love to take 30 minutes and really sort out what that means if I'd had time to sort it out myself and if we had the 30 minutes, because he seems to be closer to angry than anything else, right? It's an interesting set of words that are being used here. We kind of lose them in the English translation, but it seems that he is upset by the amount of mourning and sadness and lack of understanding and limited faith of everybody who's there. But when Jesus arrives at the tomb, he convinces them to roll away the stone over Martha's objection that it's going to stink real bad after four days because we're in the desert. And Jesus assures her that she's going to see the glory of God. And so he offers up a spoken prayer to all who are listening so that they would know and believe that he was acting on behalf of God. In a loud voice, he cries out, Lazarus, come out! and Lazarus came out. He came out with his body still wrapped up for burial, right? That whole linen strips and cloth, that's how you prepared and buried a body back then. Now, back in John 10, 27, Jesus said that his sheep know his voice and they follow him. Well, he's certainly done a dramatic demonstration of that when he calls for this particular sheep to follow him. And this passage is enormous and it is rich and it is full of truth about God and about Jesus and about faith and about us. And again, we could do a whole series for a month on this passage about God's love and mercy and the centrality of God's glory. But in the interest of time, and my need to finish my cake for the cake auction tonight at six o'clock. I want to focus on the main message of this sign, which is very much in line with what we've been doing with our study of signs. So I will ask, once again, that question that we've asked each week, if this is a sign and every sign has a purpose, what does this sign point to? And the answer is that bright, shining, central truth I mentioned back in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So I want to spend our remaining few minutes here looking at these two themes, belief and life. And specifically the centrality of belief in Jesus Christ and the reality that he is the resurrection and the life. First, I would ask you to notice that throughout this passage, Jesus has repeatedly emphasized belief. He takes it seriously from beginning to end. Now, in verse 15, which I'm cheating, we didn't read it. Jesus said that he was glad. Note this. He said he was glad that he wasn't there to heal Lazarus. He's saying he's glad Lazarus died so that the disciples would believe. And in verses 21 to 27, the spotlight turns to Martha's belief and what she believes about him and determining really exactly what that is. And it only moves on when she reaches that mature, complete understanding of of who Jesus of Nazareth is, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And remember, those are the two things that John wants us to take away for us to believe about who Jesus is. Then verses 41 and 42, Jesus prays out loud, not because he thinks it's going to buy him extra influence with God. Right? He prays aloud so the people will believe that he's acting on behalf of God. And then like most of the signs, it ends with a statement of belief in verse 45. Many of the Jews believed in him. So what we see throughout this passage is that while while Jesus is definitely sad and troubled about his friends' death and, and their sorrow and sadness, his driving concern is for their faith. His love for them compels him to delay his arrival in Bethany. Right so that Lazarus can be thoroughly and completely dead. His sisters have to mourn the loss of their brother for 4 days. But there's a greater good at stake. The faith of these women is at stake. The faith of Lazarus, the faith of the disciples, the faith of all the Jews who witness in the faith of everyone who reads or hears this story for the last 2,000 years. His concern for your faith and mine compelled him to take his time getting to Bethany. Jesus was so concerned that you and I would believe in him that Lazarus had to be dead for four days. That's how much he loves us. And that would be cruel and manipulative and selfish if it was one of us doing it for our own motives or gain. But when we realize why it was so important that we believe, well, then his motives make perfect sense. And that why is because belief is needed for eternal life, right? Remember his words, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, when you phrase it like that, it really puts things into perspective, right? This suffering is now bad, but compared to not only a greater good, but an infinitely greater good. Well, we understand better what's going on. Because the Bible is clear, there is no amount of suffering or hardship in the here and now that is too high a price to pay if it brings us or others to the belief that provides eternal life in heaven. Now, our assurance that this belief is actually true is the second part of this sign. Because it's a very clear demonstration that Jesus has the ability to give life to his followers. And remember, that is that third part of why John wrote the gospel, so that we would have life in Christ's name. This sign is really a public display that Jesus can, in fact, deliver the goods, that we have a good reason to believe in him. As we have often noted in these miracles, faith and obedience usually precede Jesus actually doing the miracle. In this case, I think it all centers around Martha. Her faith has to be refined and adjusted and tested. And then her obedience is put to the test when Jesus said, Hey, move the stone. And she says, uh, It's not going to smell very good. That's when Jesus works the miracle, calling out Lazarus as one of his sheep. And Lazarus, knowing his shepherd's voice, follows him back to life, even after four days dead. This is a proof of what John or what John records Jesus saying back in chapter 5, verses 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. That's the bottom line of this sign, that Jesus has the power to call his followers back to life, eternal life. But first, he's going to call everyone, including those who are not his followers, to judgment. And the test will be whether or not we've done enough good to be chosen to experience eternity in the presence of a perfect and holy creator of the universe. And the answer is... Absolutely not. I have not. You have not. No human being ever has. Right? Because a perfect God demands a perfect life, and none of us have lived a perfect life. We have all made mistakes. We have all sinned. We have all treated people badly one time or another, whether whether it's at school or on the playground or at work. Or at church, or on I-95, we have done the things we ought not have done. We have all done things that were focused only on ourselves or our own benefits. We have all done things that have dishonored God, or disrespected his creation, or mistreated those he created in his image. The odds are good that we've all done some of those things in the past seven days since we last met here. I will again say yes for myself. But Jesus calls his followers to life. Right? He calls his sheep, those of us who know his voice, will follow it all the way to eternal life in the presence of the Father. So how can this be when I just said it's impossible for any of us to be in the presence of a holy God? Well, it is only by the perfect and infinite sacrifice of the perfect and infinite Son of God, the one who can turn water to wine, who can heal the sick and the paralyzed, who can create food in abundance, who can give sight to the blind, who can call the dead to life, and who can ultimately raise himself from the grave. Only he can make the sacrifice needed to wash away all our sin. And he made that sacrifice. He stepped forward voluntarily 2,000 years ago, and he took our sins upon the cross. He took the big sins. He took the small sins. He took those sins that we did years and years ago, we don't like to think about or we don't want anyone to know about, he took them all. They are gone forever. Washed clean, forgotten, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our Lord and Savior, and asked forgiveness in His name. Eternal life in His name. That is the meaning and the purpose of this sign. Please pray with me. Father God,